Daniel, we'll begin. As a way of introduction, thank you very much again for being here. You have one of the most interesting careers as a lawyer I have ever seen. It's really unbelievable. You started your career in the IDF as uh, the head of the International Law Department. You were there for, I think, almost 20 years, 19 years. Um, after that, you went into private practice um, where you deal with all sorts of interesting uh, international law issues, regulation, uh, trade, homeland defense. Uh, in between and throughout those roles, you've been involved in the peace process and uh, advising different Israeli governments. You're also a teacher. I must note that I could speak to you about each one of these items for hours and hours and hours. Unfortunately, we don't have that much time and we're going to have to consolidate so much interesting information into an hour or so. So, um, you know, one of the things I love speaking to Israelis and you is you can speak direct. There's a bit more of a, you know, there's not as much social code. So one of the things Israelis, they meet for the first time, they say, where are you from? Uh, other places, you can't really ask such a question, but I'll start with that. Where are you from? Tell us about your background, maybe pre-idea. So I was born in a, in a town in the north of Israel called Haifa. Uh, uh, but I spent the formative years until age 10, I grew up in London because my father was a banker. So he took the family with him to London. Then unfortunately, my father passed away when in London. And so we came back to Israel. And I went back to being an Israeli boy. And, uh, and when I grew up and reached age 18 and finished high school, the question is, would I do the regular army or would I do what we call the military academic reserve, uh, which is a program whereby you study first and then you serve in the military in your chosen profession. And I decided after a lot of back and forth to choose between my two interests. One was computers. And the army had already offered me a position in a rather uh, a prestigious uh, computer uh, uh, unit. Or should I go and study law, which I had no idea if that was interesting or not, but it sounded like something I could enjoy. And then serve as a lawyer for the military. And I chose plan B. And, and, uh, and more or less, uh, it was all downhill from there. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, so I studied at Tel Aviv University and then joined the Military Advocate General's Corps in the IDF as a young, very young, uh, uh, law, uh, not even a lawyer, as a young law school graduate. And, and uh, that started my career. Wow, unbelievable. So, I mean, I know a few other people that have entered that route, um, you know, different departments in the, the IDF, but, um, you know, and, and Israel is a place of so many lawyers. How do you distinguish yourself? How did you land up pro progressing uh, and ultimately leading the, the IDF's legal department? How did that come about? Well, you know, when you are a military officer, uh, uh, one of the questions is, what are the criteria for advancement in the military? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, and I think... Uh, 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 I once coined a phrase saying that there are three criteria for advancement in the military. One is capability, one is connections, and one is luck. And that is not necessarily the right sequence, okay? So I think I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time. I explained what I mean. I joined as a young officer in the International Law Department. Um, 
And I was there and I was fortunate enough to be given responsibility for some of the more important uh, security related desks of that department, which brought me in contact with all the operational parts of the army. But also because I was a native English speaker, I was the obvious choice every time there was an international dispute or something which required the legal English, I was the obvious choice. And therefore, when we had um, our first international arbitration ever, which was with Egypt on the Taba arbitration, so I was chosen to be the lawyer on the, on the arbitration. So, and, and, and incident after incident, I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time with the right smile. And therefore, what actually happened was when the first intifada broke out in 1987, uh, uh, I was the lawyer responsible for supervising counterterrorism activity by the IDF from a legal perspective. So that brought me to the attention of everyone because I was in all the meetings saying, you can't do that, you can't do that. I have no idea about that either. And so everyone knew me. And then the Intifada ended in 1993 with the Oslo process. And suddenly we embarked on a peace negotiation. So again, what do you need for peace negotiation? Someone who knows the facts on the ground. Well, I'm there. And someone who, who can, can negotiate and draft in English. Well, that's me. And, and, and so I found myself as a, as a Sunday on the peace negotiation team. Uh, and then I had incredible fortune uh, that in 1994, by which time I was a nine-year veteran, which is obviously nothing, but uh, I was a veteran and I was the old guy because I was the oldest serving officer in the unit, um, uh, the peace negotiations with Jordan broke out. And the interesting thing is that uh, uh, usually such negotiations would be led by the legal advisor of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But the prime minister then trusted this negotiation to the legal advisor of the Ministry of Defense. And the point is that he hated the legal advisor of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So he refused to let him and his team participate in the negotiations. So he needed a lawyer. And so he called me up and said, how would you like to be the lawyer for the peace process with Jordan? And I said, where do I sign? And so I ended up being the lawyer who negotiated the security, the water, the border uh, uh, in the Jordanian agreement just because I hadn't angered someone. So being in the right place at the right time. And by 1995, when I'd been doing that for about 10 years, for some reason, the military thought I was good enough to head the department. And so they appointed me to that position, a point, position I held for about nine years. Well. Really unbelievable. And, you know, I read uh, one of your press releases on the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website, so detailed about international law issues and, you know, actions on the ground. You know, looking back on those years, you, you've done so much. What, what stands out as A, accomplishments that you, you're proud of and B, frustrations? You know, I've, I've heard you speak about how international law can only go so far. Um, you know, the, the, the agreement of the parties and the reality of the on the ground sometimes trumps even international law. So looking back, what are your uh, main accomplishments and uh, disappointments over that period? First of all, uh, uh, I have to say that I was extremely fortunate to have 
been a witness to some of the more dramatic events that my country uh, participated in over the last 30, 40 years. And if I look at the first chapter, which is the military chapter, then, I mean, I, I, I went from counterterrorism and war to, uh, 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 to peace process and making friends with the neighbors. And I managed to, uh, to be involved in all that in a relatively short time frame. Uh, and some things which stand out is, uh, for example, that in the Palestinian negotiations, I often found myself in the negotiating room with people who had been clients of mine in the counterterrorism world. In other words, I remember reaching the hotel in Taba where we negotiated with the Palestinians, the same Taba concerning which I had been on the arbitration team for Israel with Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. So I, get, I come to the hotel and I walk into the elevator to get up to the floor where my room is. And one of the other Israelis who sees me in the elevator says, I hope you make it all the way up. So I look back and I see that with me in the elevator are two Palestinian leaders, Jibril Rajoub and Mohammed Dahlan, both former high profile terrorists, both of whom I had approved their deportation from, from the West Bank and Gaza personally, and they knew it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and we actually became friends. We How have that lengthy discussions about the deportation. And both of them, by the way, justified it. But it was shocking to hear the explanation. I'll never forget Jibril Rajoub said to me one day, you know, you are absolutely right to deport me, but I was incredibly offended. And I said, why were you offended? He said, because the other two people you deported with me were small fry and they made me look small. <laughs> Mohammed Dahlan, who we deported from Gaza for terrorism, is now one of the senior aides to the UAE leadership, by the way. Uh, 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 uh. Once told me, you know, Daniel, you Israelis are wimps. And I said, how are we wimps? And he said, when you guys uh, interrogated me before you decided to deport me, you asked me questions. And of course I didn't answer most of the questions. But then you deported me to Egypt and they interrogated me. And they know how to interrogate. <laughs> yeah. Now, I tell you this story because I remember the feeling of, it's like being in a movie, except it's real. I mean, all of these incidents happening, uh, and they happen more, you know, often. Uh, um, it, it has a feeling of, of, uh, of unreal to it. Right. Um, what am I most proud of in my military career? First of all, I'm very proud of the role I did play during that period in two worlds, one in the peace process and two, which I continued later, and two in the counterterrorism world. Uh -huh. I helped develop some legal theories. I, I hope I managed to save some lives. Uh, 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 and, and I'm very proud of that. I'm also extraordinarily proud of the fact that I managed to help raise a generation of incredible international lawyers. That's true. And, and I meet them today, and they are, I mean, to be honest, they are way better than I was. <laughs> and they've reached the highest levels of everything. I have former assistants who are now uh, international law professors at the best universities in the United States, uh, uh, senior government officials. 
I mean, you name it, they're there. And, and every time I meet them, I have this feeling of sort of fatherly pride that I was there for a part of their initial career. So I'm very proud of that as well. I'm a bit saddened by the fact that I, I have become a very cynical international lawyer. Uh, and that speaks to your earlier point, Avi, that international law is more of an art form than, than, than a, a, a legal system. And as a result, it can cater to almost all wishes. And, uh, and that is a bit saddening because you would want international law to be a more robust, cohesive, uniform basis for international dialogue, and it never was. And I know that you may have law students listening in, and I know that many law uh, faculties, when they teach public international law, portray this picture of a cohesive, uh, uh, uniformly applied system globally, which is all about justice and right, but that's rubbish. That's not what international law is. There are components within international law which are better than others, and some of them are quite good, but it's actually a patchwork of rather basic and sometimes contradictory and sometimes wrong ideas. And, and once you realize that, when you've practiced it for enough time, you bit lose the faith in international law as a tool for, for uh, uh, be, as being the basis for international relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be useful, but it's definitely not something which you can, it's not solid basis for almost anything. Uh -huh. So, I mean, I'd like to delve a bit more into this because it's, it's fascinating as one of the leading experts on international law, you're kind of giving it a bit of a bad name and, and rightfully so. I mean, most recently the ICC, the head body of international criminal law um, was somewhat politicized with their recent decision. I'm happy for you to go into that a bit more and, and other such things when you talk about the wars, uh, the, the operations of Beret Yutsukar and Sukhaitan, all these things. These are the wars that uh, Israel and Gaza had. You know, there's so much criticism from the international community, yet I know as an Israeli, you know, it's, it's pure self-defense. So how does that, you know, drive together those, those differences of opinion? Let's start with what's happening now in the International Criminal Court. Um, first of all, for the sake of full disclosure, I'm not an objective a, a, a viewer of the proceeding, I actually submitted uh, uh, an amicus brief to the International Criminal Court in this case. Yeah. So uh, uh, I warn all listeners that they should understand that I have a, a, a bias on this one. Um, but let me start with the international law question. Forget the Israeli-Palestinian dispute and what we've been doing to one another over the years. The International Criminal Court was established in 1998. The International Criminal Court was not established by God. It was established by human beings in a document which was finalized in Rome. Mm -hmm. And in effect, we've invented a new court which did not exist before. Now, the big question one man asked myself, and this is a question for the ICC, but it's true for all international law. When you set up something new, to whom does it apply? And the answer in international law is, it applies only to those countries which have agreed to participate, unless 
enough time has elapsed and international practice has shown that all countries view it as binding irrespective of the question of whether they are party to it or not. That is the basic distinction between conventional and customary international law. There is absolutely no doubt that the ICC is a conventional mechanism, mm -hmm. which means that it was established by a group of countries. I participated in the negotiations on the ICC, but Israel, uh, uh, while we signed the ICC statute, we never ratified it. And in international law, that means nothing. And subsequently following the US formal de-signing of the treaty, we also did the same. And I've recently heard that Russia also did the same. And so we have never been a member of the court. And so the legal question, which I think is really important is, can the court of jurisdiction over a non-member state, be it the United States, be it Russia, be it China, be, you choose, I think China is not a member, I'm almost positive. Um, or can it assume that it has authority over a non-member state? And this is something which is really annoying to me because A, in international law, the answer is clearly you cannot set up an institution which is conventional and give it powers over non-state parties. You can't. And if you try to do that, you are breaking international law as you do it. And yet that is what the International Criminal Court is attempting to do here. And it's attempting to do it here and uh, with respect to the US, by the way, based on the following logic, that it has jurisdiction over the territory of state parties, which means if the United States conducts a war crime within the territory of another state, which is a party, the court will have jurisdiction over the United States, okay? Now, I'm not arguing that that's what the treaty says, but the idea that you have jurisdiction over a citizen of a non-state party is a huge event, huge event in international law. Now, in the Israeli case, they jumped over three obstacles. Obstacle number one is we're not a state party. Obstacle number two, they have decided that the West Bank and Gaza Strip are a part of another state, a state they call the state of Palestine, a state they claim already exists. This is what the prosecutor has maintained and what the majority opinion of the court appears to have accepted. Mm -hmm. Palestine exists. Now, it doesn't matter that the Palestinians don't claim that they exist. No, that's not the issue. It doesn't matter that the Arab League doesn't claim that they exist. That's not the issue either. It doesn't matter that you will never find any formal state of Palestine in real life. It doesn't exist. But for the purposes of the ICC statute, they have decided that it does exist. And the third loop said, and therefore when Palestine was accepted as a state party to the ICC, in 2015, it meets the criteria for a state for the ICC statute. Now that's another huge jump and it runs counter to reality, but it conforms to political sentiment. The third jump is, okay, so you think you have jurisdiction over non-state parties. 
you think Palestine is a state and therefore if Palestine agrees to the, and it's a state party to the ICC, so it can grant you jurisdiction. Jump number three is what is the territory of Palestine? Because in order for the court to have jurisdiction, the alleged offense had to occur on the territory of a state party. And on that, the prosecutor says, everyone knows that all of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza are the territory of the Palestinian state. And the majority of the court says, everyone knows because the prosecutor said it. And I strongly recommend reading both the majority opinion in the pretrial chamber, but especially the minority ruling of the Hungarian judge Kovac, Petr Kovac. Mm -hmm. I have to say, Petr, uh, Judge Kovac's ruling is extraordinarily well researched. Mm. And the way he describes it, he says, the prosecutor wants you to accept the fact that you should agree with her because she said that you should agree with her. In other words, she, she sets up the premise and claims that the premise is a fact. And then she says, I've already shown that. And, and that's the vicious circle that she, that she promotes in a, a, in a report. And he said that the majority opinion just decided to parrot what the prosecutor said without ever asking any of the legal questions involved. And so, this is a perfect example of the abuse of international law for political motivation. But it's easily done because international law is so fluid. And so, you know, we call it the Swiss cheese, but without the cheese, just the whole. Uh, um, you can usually invent any sort of interpretation and it could be even potentially stable for a while, which is exactly what the prosecutor did and what the majority judges did as well. Um, and that's a case I'm, you know, I'm personally involved in, but also I think it's really dangerous for Israel. It's really dangerous for the court and it's really dangerous for any other non-state party for a variety of reasons, which I think I've explained. Do you, do you think this very much delegitimizes the ICC and international law? Not only this, but perhaps other things in the past. Uh, there's been criticism throughout the years. Um, I mean, a wide range of criticisms, but in your opinion, does this really um, put a stamp on how politicized the court really is? I don't know. I really don't know, and I'll explain why. I think with respect to the court, the court until today has only prosecuted Africans. Right. And the court has been under immense pressure to stop being the court for African war crimes and becoming the court for world war crimes. But the problem is, who's fighting in this world? It's usually either one of the uh, um, major superpowers or one of the proxies. Mm -hmm. So if you want to touch upon anything outside uh, uh, Africa, if you either go to Europe or go to Asia, or go to uh, America, it's very difficult to find a conflict of a scale which justifies ICC involvement, which does not involve either Russia or China or the US or European power, etc. Mm -hmm. Therefore, in many respects, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the one conflict concerning which the ICC believes it could legitimately 
expand its jurisdiction without necessarily triggering World War III. Now, if you understand that, you understand why the special focus on this dispute by many of the ICC staff who have no political leanings or affiliation whatsoever. Right. However, add to that the fact that the previous prosecutor of the court before uh, uh, Fatou Ben Souda uh, uh, Ocampo mm -hmm. actually wrote the blueprint for how Palestine could get jurisdiction and be a member of the court. He published it in an article and they've been following his advice ever since to the letter. And he was a very capable lawyer. And in effect, he is the one who engineered the Palestinian membership. He wrote to them first get recognition as a non-member state in the UN. On that basis, you can legitimately get a backdoor pass into the ICC statute, and then you are a member state, and then you can be a, a play the game. And he wrote that, and they follow it. So while the ICC itself, I don't think, and most of the people there are not political, I am 100% positive that some of the key figures had specific political agendas. But I want to be clear, I'm not saying that they did so because they hate Israelis and they like Palestinians. I think they've done so for a variety of reasons. Specifically with respect to Ocampo, I've heard that his agenda was he wanted to become a law professor at Harvard and understood that law Israel bashing could and taking a human rights focused pro-Palestinian position could be very useful to promote that future career. Now, I say that because it's a cynical approach to how people make decisions, but I've become a cynical person with respect to how people make decisions. Perhaps realistic based on your experience. Um, I, I want to just take a different angle a little bit and ask you about um, mediation in general and uh, you know your experience in the peace process. I want to ask you about the moment when you walk into a room with people you know are entrenched in positions that are completely different for you and you know even before anyone's opened their mouth that uh, you know you disagree. How, how do you approach that and attempt to come to some sort of understanding and you mentioned some successful peace negotiation negotiations Egypt and Jordan those are the two uh, peace negotiations in existence I know uh, this 2020 there's been some other relations that have warmed up with Arab countries and oh, no, uh, the new treaties of peace now we have with the UAE and we have right. with uh, uh, Bahrain. Yes. Bahrain we have a few new ones right Look, you don't know this, Avi, but one of the things that one of my hobbies is negotiation. And I've been teaching and practicing negotiations now for 35 years. Uh, I'll tell you a secret. Um, for some reason, I managed to convince some big multinationals that I know what I'm doing in negotiations. So I've been giving negotiation workshops and seminars for some of the leading global multinationals now for several years. Uh, uh, and it's fascinating to see how CEOs of small companies and big companies negotiate uh, um, and it's a great opportunity and I taught it in university and I practice it in daily life. Now I say that because there's no easy answer to your question, but I'll give you a story which will explain one of the techniques I use, okay? okay. I remember we were negotiating with the Palestinians in a hotel room in Egypt and Cairo. And this was the initial stages of the water negotiation. And 
a new person came to the room. He, apparently he was a history professor at a re, important university in Gaza. And one of the things which happens, especially in this type of heated personal dispute, is that he came in with a full belly full of anger at Israelis and Jews. And he viewed that meeting as an opportunity to vent. And so he, said, he told me the following story. He said, do you know the story of the exodus of the Jews from Egypt? And I said, yep, I've heard of it before. We even have a holiday every year to commemorate this. I right. said, you know, the Jews fled from Egypt and went into the desert and were in the desert for 40 years. And he said, yep, it's the story. Yep. He said, and then they came to the kingdom of Canaan. And they conquered Canaan. Now, the people of Canaan suddenly saw that the Jews were the big, you know, wagawags. And so they all joined them and became part of the Jewish Israelite kingdom. Yay. Said, and then came the Christians. And the Christians threw out the Jews. That's what, it, that's, well, actually, first came the Muslims. And the Muslims threw out the Jews. And now the same people from Canaan now saw that the Muslims were stronger. So they all became Muslims. And then came the Christians, and they threw out the Muslims. And so the same people came and now knew that the strong people were the Christians. And then the Muslims came back, and they threw out the Christians again. So the Canaans became Muslims. And he said, do you know what the motto, moral of this story is? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. He said, the moral of the story is that we, the Palestinians, are the descendants of the original people of Canaan. And you guys are just immigrants from Europe. What a misunderstanding. Yeah. And, and, and so I looked at him. And now what can you respond? Right? I mean, it's obvious that he's coming from, from what he believes in. Right. So one of the techniques I use in negotiation is A, to let them vent, and B, to use a sense of humor. So I said to him, you know what? Then I have a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. He says, what solution? He said, if you guys always change religion on the basis of who's stronger, then we're, we're back. So we want to become Jews again? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he liked that. Eh? And then we broke for, for tea. Uh, uh -huh. But the point I'm, I, I'm making is um, there are stages to every negotiation or mediation or whatever. And the initial stages is a stage where you are trying to convince the other side not that you are right, but that you believe in what you are saying. And that is the required first stage of any negotiation, especially once so sensitive and personal and historical and strategic as peace negotiation. But at some point in time, you get over it and you reach the issues and then you are supposed to negotiate on the subject matter. And I have to say that quite often, people who started off with such speeches either left the negotiation room after they gave the speeches, which is what happened to that professor, or after a while they got fed up with the noise of their own voices and they started negotiating in earnest on the real subject. So one of the rules of negotiation is patience. You have to wait. There's a time and place for everything and agreements do not just pop up. You have to create a relationship and you have to go through a process it's like an Alcoholics Anonymous process of 10 stages of a negotiation. Mm -hmm. At some point in time, 
you and the other side will realize that you're headed towards an agreement uh, and, and you may not even know how you got there, but you right. did. Amazing. And I mean, is there a role of a mediator in these processes, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Usually it's the Americans. And, and what is their role? Because there's such a bias, let's say, and medias, mediators are supposed to be completely impartial. So where, where does a mediator, if at all, fit in? Again, the difference between theory and practice, Abu. Mm -hmm. In theory, the mediator must always be an objective third party who has no prior association with either of the parties, etc. And that is, by the way, absolutely true of almost all commercial mediation. Um, political mediations, uh, uh, especially of this type, where the mediators are governments, are never objective. They are always slanted in one direction or the other, be they the United Nations or China or Russia or the US or the EU. Everyone has an opinion on everything. Everyone has a history with everyone. So the expectation that we'll find an alien to mediate is apparently unrealistic. The real question is, what are they supposed to do? Right. So the easy answer is they're supposed to facilitate the meeting and help overcome obstacles. That is what you would want the mediator to do. Unfortunately, sometimes the mediator becomes more than just a mediator. I can tell you that in many of the negotiations when the Americans wanted to be in the room, this immediately resulted in a difference in positions on the Palestinian side because they were talking for the American audience and not for the Israeli one. There's even a funny incident I, I, I participated in. Uh, we were negotiating in a hotel in Tel Aviv, me and the chief Palestinian lawyer on the legal arrangements around the 1995 interim agreement. And we had a big row. And the American consul general was in the room with us. And after we fought for about an hour back and forth, he said, look, I've been listening to you guys fight now for three days. We've actually worked and we've come up with a draft which we think can help you move forward. And he put it on the table. Now, I had no idea he was going to do that. Neither did the Palestinian. So both of us were annoyed. So we both read it and we both hated it for different reasons, obviously. And so we reached our first agreement, the first agreement in that committee. You know that agreement? What are we? What? To throw the Americans out of the room. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and we actually said to them, thank you for your assistance. We'll call you if we need you. Please leave. Uh -huh. Almost in those exact words. Uh, and then we went back to our own fighting. And by the way, we finished with an agreement. It's not that we didn't reach an agreement. It just took us longer and we did it our own way. So to be a facilitator is an art form in and of itself. Not everyone can do it, but it is really useful if both sides trust the third party, then the third party could have an influential role. If the third party is viewed as biased by one of the sides and it's two against one, and uh, it usually is even worse than the one-on-one -on -one negotiation. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, like, you know, based on what you just said, the Americans are so uh, powerful and influential uh, in these processes. So, I mean, on the one hand, they criticize the leaders, all leaders. So you have uh, Abu Mazen, Abbas, who's not willing to negotiate. 
Some people blame Bibi, some people blame Trump for being too partisan. And now I'm sure there's a blame on Biden for being too partisan. So I guess just a general question, is there a peace process going on right now? And uh, are the parties even speaking that you know of? Let me start by saying that I am unaware of any formal track one uh, peace negotiations currently going between Israel and the Palestinians. I'll even go one step further and say, and your Canadian audience may be shocked at what I'm about to say. Um, up to about 10 years ago, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was on the top 10 list of important conflicts around the world. You could go anywhere around the planet and be it um, a newspaper or radio station or TV station or an internet station. There would be something about what the Israelis did to the Palestinians or what the Palestinians did to the Israelis almost every day. And something happened. And what happened was a combination of, I think, three phenomena. A, people got tired of listening to us fighting. And we went through all of the Oslo peace process and failed. I'm one of the Oslo peace negotiators. We failed to bring it to a resolution. Two, the world developed additional problems. So if, and you can choose your continent and there's a long list of things, there's Syria and there's Yugoslavia and there's uh, Ireland. And the, I mean, you can decide where you want to look Every part of the world has its own issues. Thirdly, uh, uh, a new regional threat arose, which is Iran, which is not just a regional threat, it's on the verge of becoming a global threat, another global, but global frightening potential superpower. So what actually happened is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict lost its rating. And if once it was in the top 10 list, I don't even think it's in the top 100 list anywhere anymore. Now, to make it clear when I say anywhere, I'm not talking about Toronto, where I'm sure it's not on the top 100 list. I don't think it's on our, it's on our list. Right. And you know how I can prove that to you? We have an elections coming up next month. Mm -hmm. we, this is our fourth election in the last two years. Right. You know that there's no single party in Israel, no single party, be it right wing or left wing, which has Israeli-Palestinian negotiations on its agenda. agenda for the election. Not one. It's as if it's a non-issue in Israel anymore because yeah. we've lost hope. We've, it's nothing to do with Bibi. Yeah. It's also the left saying, we know what the Palestinians are about. We're not there now. Right. And if you go to the Palestinian side, don't be shocked to learn that there are very few political parties on the Palestinian side clamoring for an Israeli-Palestinian negotiation. Exactly zero. So let me ask, what's your take on that? How do you see the future based on the status quo? And uh, I'll just point out all these beautiful quotes by Shimon Peres, who says how uh, you know, the Jews' uh, contribution to the world is dissatisfaction, meaning we always want to improve things. And the late Jonathan Sachs, I know his brother is your partner there at Herzog Fox. He says how, you know, Jews have to, they're not optimists, but they're always hopeful. So what, what is your take on the future? I know you called yourself a bit of a, a cynical 
uh, lawyer at this stage, but uh, and you've put in so much time in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is now frankly dead. So, how do you see the future? Well, the conflict isn't dead; the peace process is dead. <laughs> right. Is, is is simmering under the carpet. Alive and um, well. Yes. Um, I'll say one thing before I answer your question. I'll add one component. Okay. Um, the component was that we always thought that. Uh, you know, in ancient building techniques, when you build an arch, there's always a stone at the center of the top of the arch, which is the keystone, which carries all the weight and, and sort of uh, 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 sends the, the, the weight alongside the two sides of the arch, right? And without the keystone, the arch doesn't work. And arches have been developed in history over the years by many different nations, but all of them realized you need a keystone. And it's very difficult to build one. We always thought that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was the keystone of regional peace, for example. So everyone told us that if you want to make peace with the Gulf, with the Northern African states, etc., you have to go through the Palestinians first. And in fact, the Palestinians repeatedly said so. Something happened last year. That illusion evaporated because I've been doing business in the Persian Gulf now for 14 years. We've been at peace with them for ages. They just didn't dare let anyone know because they didn't want anyone to think that they'd given up on the Palestinian cause. In 2020, due to the combination of their lack of interest in the Palestinians anymore, and the total disillusionment with the Palestinians on the one hand, and the rising threat of Iran on the other hand, these Arab countries said, you know what, to heck with it. We'll go public with what we've been saying in private now for years. We like you. And what you've seen now is that suddenly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not, and apparently has never been the keystone for regional peace. Now that's a huge development. And that the reason why Abu Mazen and his team have publicly attacked any Arab country who has made peace with Israel over the last year, which is extraordinary. I mean, think about it. They're saying you should not make peace with Israel, right? While they're still supposedly in negotiations with it. I think this is going to have a huge impact on any future Israeli-Palestinian dialogue because the Palestinians lost most of their ammunition when that happened. I think losing that ammunition will have an, will have an impact on the expectation levels because the hand is weaker than it used to be. On the good side, I will also say that it's sort of decreased the size of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to where it should be. And it removed part of the overdrama which had been attached to it. And suddenly it looks more solvable in its current size than it used to be. If it's the biggest the conflict in history. And you know, I once gave a lecture about uh, uh, how long this dispute has been going on. And the anecdote I shared in the middle of a negotiation session with the US president was that during the third crusade, Richard the Lionheart, 
together with Philip of France, went to the Holy Land and they fought Salahadin, or called Saladin, like a salad uh, by, by English speakers. And they, the Crusaders managed to take control over all of the coastal areas, but they couldn't take control of Jerusalem. And when they realized they couldn't take Jerusalem, Richard wrote to Salahadin a letter and saying, let's negotiate Palestine. And we have three issues on our agenda. The division of the Holy Land, the holy sites, and the remnants of the Holy Cross. And I remember saying to people, I just wrote our agenda for our negotiations today, and we're still with the same bloody agenda. Just the parties keep changing. So if you look at it from that perspective, you can legitimately ask yourself, what type of hubris allows you to think that you will be the generation that will resolve this thousand year old dispute? But if you put it in its proper perspective and say, we are now two neighbors fighting over territory and a few other issues, but the rest of the area is relatively quiet and we are, most of us are joined in agreement on what is important, what is not, maybe that will be conducive to bringing us back to the table on both sides with more realistic expectations. And I say that because at the end of the day, Avi, I don't see an alternative but an Israeli-Palestinian agreement, and in my opinion, a two-state solution, not because I think it's the best solution, it's just the least worst solution for both sides. So at the end of the day, I'm quite confident that it will happen. Uh, um, I just don't know when. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, comforting to know that there's hope in the future. And I mean, like I said, we can talk for hours and hours about every aspect of your career. Each one is so fascinating. You have a wealth of stories uh, in each, each phase. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, you're one of the very few lawyers that have managed to go from the public sector, the army, to a very successful career at Herzog uh, Law Firm. I don't know what you call called now. I think your tagline is Israel's leading law firm and rightfully so, got some fantastic leading lawyers there, including yourself. So I, I know you started out on your own and then went there, but the question is more, how do you go from public law to the private sector, which is a rare move? First of all, as I told you earlier, I was extraordinarily fortunate. And uh, when I decided to leave the military, I was 40 years old and I was offered a, uh, the position of the military advocate general of the army by the chief of staff. And I met with him and I said, sir, I thank you very much for the offer. I highly appreciate it. I would have been the youngest general in the army. Uh, and I said, I just don't want the job. And he said, who refuses after a 20 year military career, who refuses the highest position? And I said, I'll get, I have 10 reasons why I think I should leave. And he said, start talking. And by number three, he said, I think you should leave. <laughs> and one of the reasons I said to him was that given the fact that the military career in Israel ends at a relatively young age, you need to be able to be young enough to start a new career when you leave. And, and if you stay in too long, you will be overqualified and, and too old to actually be able to start a new career. So the first fortunate thing is they allowed me to leave and to accept my refusal to take that promotion. Um, then I was fortunate enough to do to work for 
almost two years in, in one of Israel's largest charities as a manager. And to learn two things about myself. A, I didn't like working as a manager for a charity. And B, I like being a lawyer. In other words, you have to try something else before you realize what you really like. You know? And then, because as a manager of this huge charity, I used all the law firms in Israel as my advisors. And every time they did something, I said to myself, oh, I could do that. <laughs> the leap from there to private practice didn't look as scary as it would have been. And so I set up my own law firm uh, using the old movie cliche, if I build it, then they come. And shockingly enough, clients came in from day one and I never looked back. And the other point is that I was very fortunate that I could translate my government expertise into the private sector. Now, to be fair, uh, only about 20% of what I do is public international law today. But I've had some really significant public international cases. I spent three years defending a group of Dutch companies in, in the Netherlands against war crimes. Um, I've handled the ICC case here. I, I'm now uh, being asked by a country in Asia to represent them in international dispute. I have public international law cases and they're fascinating and interesting. And I'm fortunate to be also the only one in Israel with such a practice. So it's easy to be a monopoly. But most of what I do is I translated the same tools and I now specialize in international trade uh, in areas where international law meets uh, international commerce. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge area in which again, I was fortunate to be one of the first in Israel to do it. And because of my background and all of the government officials knew me because I was the lawyer for the priests and all the ministers knew me and all the generals knew me. So, they trusted me enough, so when I went into private practice, they kept on coming. So I was fortunate enough that I could actually capit uh, capitalize on my past in my future. And I have learned that that was much more luck than anything else. Honestly. Absolutely. I mean, as, as I said, you have one of the most interesting careers around and you're still going strong, really uh, beautiful to see uh, and, and continuing to, to inspire people. You mentioned how you had, you brought up a new generation of international lawyers. I mean, clearly, if I may, um, maybe you can touch upon that a little bit. And, and the question is, what advice would you give to younger lawyers, law students? And how did you go about fostering that new generation of, of top lawyers? First, I have to tell you one of the things which keeps annoying me is how much more professional they are than I was at their age. In other words, it's a combination of improved schooling and improved tools. But lawyers today are, are in many respects, armed better than we were at the equivalent age. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's all about the individual, not about anything else. Um, I meet, I continue to teach because I love teaching. I meet uh, 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 a lot of young, uh, uh, highly qualified, highly intelligent people. And one of the challenges they face is that in today's world, you're supposed to choose the career path. Uh, uh, and there are no clear career paths anymore. Because when I grew up, you know, if you were smart and you were supposed to study, then you had to choose between the exact sciences, medicine, and law, more or less. 
Uh, that's where the smart people went, right? Today, I have to be fair, even having a degree appears to be 99% of the cases a waste of time. Because given the fact that you can study almost anything you want by yourself at home in a few months, uh, the necessity of going to school only makes sense if it's something so complicated that you actually need people to walk you through it in a way where, you know, hand-holding the old university style. Or if they need you to have a breadth of knowledge, which you would never get if you studied yourself because people dig holes in, in knowledge, but they don't go wide usually. Now that's a huge change. So when young people come to me and I have sons, I mean, my oldest son is going to leave the army soon and he's always dreamt of being a physicist. But he came to me a few days ago and said, you know that, but physicists, you know, that's not clearly a career move because before a PhD, you were not really qualified for anything. So I need another degree as well I can work with. I'm, I'm playing around with computer science or engineering so that I have a profession as well. Now, the younger generation of lawyers today have numerous career paths before them. And I don't distinguish between the subject matter, I distinguish between the type of career. You can be a private lawyer in one of a million different fields and areas, although as you know, Avi, we are qualified for everything. So theoretically you and I could handle divorces, uh, 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 you could negotiate a, a multinational M&A agreement, although I don't know how to do that, maybe you don't either, but theoretically our diploma allows us to do everything which is rubbish, right? I mean, uh, uh, one of my best friends in the UK is a lawyer who used to be the lawyer for Princess Diana. And she called him up one day and said, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to divorce Charles, I want you to be my lawyer. And he said to her, Princess Diana, I've never done a divorce case in my life. And so she responded, so it'll be the first for both of us. <laughs> so, so lawyers can theoretically do anything, private lawyers. So that's a universe. Another right. option is to be a government lawyer. Now you'll make less money, but you'll make a bigger difference to your country. So I don't know what the Canadian word equivalent to Zionist is, a patriot maybe. Nationalist. Uh, yeah, Nationalist, patriots. But yeah. If you have an inclination to do bet better for your country, then working for the government is obviously the way to go. Then we have the group who want to be judges. They don't want to work for the government. They want to decide for other people what they do. And it's a subgroup, but it's separate. And then you have the academics. So the people who come to me, a lot of them have a look at my career and say, uh, you started in public international law, you now do international trade, you do all of that. How do we do the same thing? And my answer to them, I have no idea how I did what I did. It sort of happened and I took advantage of opportunities as they came to me. So the only thing I can tell them is start walking the path you want. Identify which of these speaks to you. And then if you're good enough and you manage to walk along the path far enough, you'll be you know, you'll be noticed, sometimes they'll give you an option to reach a fork in the path where you can choose another direction. It happened to me, it does not necessarily have to happen. But if you want that option, you have to choose a path where you feel confident you can walk well. 
So, and, and I also recommend to people, if you can be one of the few people in life who actually work in things they are interested in, because most people don't, please do that. Absolutely. That's what it's about. I mean, from my experience, uh, speaking to and dealing with uh, leading lawyers, more experienced lawyers, is what really makes the difference is your time you give to others by teaching, by doing things like this. I think that that's really uh, distinguishes, if you will. And, uh, you know, I'll just say thank you again for your time on this, on this busy day. Your words have been insightful. And before I let you go, I'll just ask, is there any other wise words you want to leave us with? Any tips for the younger generation of lawyers? Uh, how do we become the best lawyers we can be? I'll share with you the thoughts I give to my students. The first thing is that you need to remember that the law was made by man and not by God, if you believe in God. In other words, it's not a divine, uh, it wasn't handed down by the universe, it's not karma. It's just a bunch of people just like us sitting together and making political compromises and coming up with documents, which then we call them law. And once you realize that is what the law is, you accept it for what it is. It's not perfect. It doesn't attempt to be right, although many people tend to conflate it with, with justice. Law strives for justice, but never reaches it. It's always a compromise. So if you're not in love with the law, you can look at it for what it is. You can also then use it as a tool of doing good. And for me, uh, uh, law has always been a means to an end and not an end itself. And the end should always be the betterment of society, the betterment of your country, and the betterment of situation of individual people. And I have to tell you, I know that making peace treaties is more, uh, you know, interesting and amazing and everything. And I remember being in palaces and the White House, etc. These are personal stories I will take with me. But the satisfaction of helping a client. Uh, I have three clients who claim that I saved their lives and I think at least two are right. The satisfaction I have in those individual cases greatly surpasses the, you know, the, 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 the same satisfaction I have of the big thing. And so I will end by saying that don't think that bigger is necessarily better. In some respects, even a small case where you help an individual and you reach the right result, which ends up people, you know, getting what they deserve, etc. In, so, in some parts of life, I think that is more important. Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, everyone has a need to make a difference and I have no doubt about it. You've made a huge difference in the lives of so many and also in the nation of Israel, peace processes, amongst other things. And you continue to be a fantastic lawyer. So thanks again for your time and sharing your wisdom. And uh, maybe we'll have the opportunity to chat again soon. Thank you very much, Abby, for this opportunity to speak to an audience I would otherwise never hope. Well, now that you're out there, I'm sure you'll be uh, getting calls. <laughs> Bye, Avi. Bye for now. Thank you.